Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest today is engineer Lenise Bent. First of all, metal has never gone away, unlike many other genres that have really diminished over the years. Metal, in fact, continues to be more popular than ever, even though it may be slightly under the radar for the most part. According to Chartmatic, which is a service that analyzes all the charts, metal acts still pack stadiums and actually make more money than big pop acts like Ed Sheeran and Kenny Chesney or Harry Styles. Not only that, metal fans buy more physical albums, CDs, vinyl, just about anything they can get their hands on by the band, merch, they'll buy anything, and as a result, metal is thriving on a financial level as well. So... Chartmatic looked to find out where most of this was happening, and they found that there were a number of cities across the world where metal especially was big. They're probably not what you expect. Chicago's number one, then Mexico City, followed by Helsinki, Santiago, Chile, Sydney, and Brisbane. In Finland, they actually have the highest number of metal bands per capita, which isn't too surprising because that's the home of so many metal subgenres. Now, here's what's really surprising. The top metal bands, and this is based on the number of Spotify listeners and followers that they have. Number one is Linkin Park. Number two, Guns N' Roses. Number three, Metallica. Number four, System of a Down. Number five, Nickelback. That's kind of surprising. Number six, Black Sabbath. Number seven, Kiss. Eight is Slipknot, nine, Scorpions, and number 10 is a newer band, Bring Me the Horizon. Following up close behind is another new band, relatively new band, Ghost. So lots of music genres aren't what they used to be, but metal keeps on thriving, and it shows no signs of slowing down. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Also, I'm pleased to announce that the fifth edition of my Mixing Engineer's Handbook is now available. It's totally updated and includes new sections on mixing and immersive audio, self-mastering, new mixer interviews, and much more. Get your copy at a special discounted price at bobbyosinski.com forward slash handbook. That's bobbyosinski.com forward slash handbook. You can also find it on Amazon and Apple Books. And remember, you can learn all about the latest in music, audio, and production news when you sign up for my newsletter at bobbyosinski.com. There you'll also find out about openings for my latest online classes and special events. That's bobbyosinski.com. Now here's something that's, again, really interesting, I thought. The death of key changes. Turns out if you go back and look at every Billboard Hot 100 number one hit, between 1958 and 1990. A number of things pop out. The first thing is the key of the song. G major was a really popular key, mostly because it's easy to work with on a guitar and a piano, and those are the two most popular compositional instruments during those years anyway. In fact, across the decades, we see keys that are convenient for those instruments like C major and G major, D major and less so keys that have lots of black keys, like B major and G flat major. But what's more significant than this is that 23% of number one hits between 1958 and 1990 had multiple keys. 
So in other words, there was a key change within the song, usually towards the end. So it shifted either up a whole or a half step. This is sometimes known as a modulation. Thing about it is that after 1990, hit songs have very few key changes, if at all. Songwriters began to use all keys pretty much at the same time, instead of relying on G or C or D. Well, doesn't matter what the key is. And there's a few reasons for this. The first is DAWs came into being, and now the method of songwriting was way different because you used to write a song very linearly, section to section to section to section, and now it's vertical. If you look at the lanes on a digital audio workstation, and if you look at the fact that so much song construction is based around short loops, you find that it's kind of inconvenient or unnecessary to do key changes. But another big thing that happened was the fact that the rise of hip-hop changed all this. Because if someone is rapping, a key change doesn't much matter. So you can change the key, but the excitement doesn't necessarily change as well. Where if you're singing, that tends to happen, especially if it goes up, because all of a sudden the singer is straining a little bit more and there's more emotion. Not so when it comes to rap hip-hop. So key changes used to be a powerful production tool for raising excitement in a song, but they very well may be a thing of the past. My guest this week is Lenise Bent, who is one of a handful of women working in the Hollywood recording studio business in a technical role during the 1970s, and was the first woman to receive an RIAA platinum album for her engineering of Auto American by Blondie. While working as an assistant at Village Recorder, Lenice worked on a number of classic albums, including Asia by Steely Dan, Breakfast in America by Supertramp, and Tusk by Fleetwood Mac. She then became chief engineer for producer Mike Chapman, working on albums by Blondie, The Knack, and Susie Quattro. Lenice eventually moved over to post-production sound, where she worked as a sound editor, sound supervisor, and re-recording mixer on films like Shrek, Spirit, and Shrek 2. During the interview, we spoke about her getting her start as an assistant at Village Recorders, working on Steely Dan's Asia album, being chief engineer for producer Mike Chapman, getting sick from the intense work schedule, starting back at the bottom in post, and much more. I spoke with Lenise from her office in Los Angeles via Zoom. Let's go back to the beginning. I want to know about the early you and how you got into the business. Oh my gosh. Well, how far back do you want to go? Uh, I started in the Screen Children's Guild when I was eight years old and uh, growing up here in Los Angeles, Compton, actually. And so that, you know, wet my whistle a little bit that way. Also, I had uh, um, technical people in my family and musical people in my family. So, um, you know, it just all came together then. So I studied film in school and then my boyfriend had a band and uh, his guitar player, Roger Lynn, was uh, engineering for Leon Russell. At, and Leon back then had a home studio that nobody had back then. And I got invited over there and I was so excited because I was a huge Leon Russell fan. And when I walked into the house, which was now a recording studio, that was the first time I'd really been in a recording studio. And had no idea. I'd never given any thought to how records were made or, you know, I just loved them. And, and when I 
walked in and where the dining room used to be is a, was a control room and saw the console and the Stevens 40 track tape machine and the monitors and outboard gear, but heard this fabulous music coming from a record they were working on, Will of the Wisp. I, it was like the angels smiled on me and, and I got hit by lightning and it was my epiphany. And I just said, whoa, show me how to work this thing. And I dropped out of university and found a recording school and told my parents the next day. <laughs> and uh, and fortunately, my dad was dean of an aerospace institute, Northrop University. And so he understood the technical quality of a training like that. You know, back then, that was kind of blue collar work and, you know, trade training and things. Uh, you went to university or you became a tradesman. And um, um, we know that's not true anymore. And so, uh, but I had a support, so I liked that. And so I went to Soundmasters Recording School and I was the only girl and 50 guys for the first night. And that dwindled down as time went on, but uh, um, they didn't have actual uh, gear or whatever. It was just in a, a ballroom and they were just talking about sound and it meant it was like Chinese to me and I, and I freaked and I went, Oh God, I've blown it really bad. <laughs> I don't know what this is about. And uh, amplitude and velocity and Doppler effect and all these things. So I called Roger in a panic and, and uh, he said, Oh, come over. So the next day I went back over to Leon's house and Roger was kind enough to say, this is an LA two way and it's a compressor and this is what compression sounds like and ran some you know music through there and i got to play with it and here's an 1176 and you know, this is equalization and this is what attack and release mean and this is you know your ratio and blah 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 anyway point being i had the great opportunity to go to school monday and wednesday night and then go over to leon's tuesdays and thursdays to you know, put into play what I had heard about the night before. And then uh, when we did have our labs, our labs for Soundmasters was uh, actually in real studios like Capitol and Conway. So that was great because back then the recording schools didn't have the brick and mortar rooms made just for the schools with all the latest and greatest. And um, so I had that great opportunity as well so a lot of i think the universe just wanted me to do this and just cleared the path and because i was so myopic about it um you know uh, as i tell people i didn't need people to tell me no i needed them to tell me how and i sought out those opportunities and i was just relentless about it and then I got, uh, so I graduated and got a job at the Village Recorder, now Village Studios, as an assistant. And I got hired the same day as another girl assistant. And there was one before Terry Becker was already there for two months. And then a month or so later, Carla Frederick showed up. And I got hired with Barbara Isaac and all. So there were four women out of the six assistants at the Village. 
you know, that hadn't happened before and probably hasn't happened quite like that since. But uh, Village has always been progressive like that, though. Mm -hmm. Every time I've worked there, there's always been female assistance. Well, Jeff has carried on Jordy Hormel's vision as far as that goes, Um, because Jordy, um, the original owner and creator of the village, uh, it was his idea to have women there. He felt that it added a lot of positive energy. We were organized. We he didn't think our egos would get in the way of, you know, the artist or the project. And maybe that sounds sexist or something, but whatever, I'm grateful for the opportunity. And we proved ourselves. All four of us went on to do have long careers. I'm the only one left, sadly. They've all passed. Hmm. But uh, um, so I carry on the torch for them. Yeah, yeah. How long were you at Village? Three years. You worked on a lot of great projects in the meantime, huh? Um, Boy, did I luck out. And timing was everything on that one. Yes. It was all great projects. I mean, there were good ones. There were great ones and greater ones. And (laughs) because back then... Any artist who went into a studio like that had to have already proven to a record label that they were worth investing in. And so the only people who came into the door who weren't those people were somebody with a whole lot of money and wanted to do a karaoke thing or, you know, something like that. But that was, you know, few and far between. Everybody was, you know, had high, enormous budgets back then. It was the height of the music recording industry. I, when I look back, I don't see any other time that was so affluent as it was back then, and, and it was about to crash, and it did. Yeah. <laughs> what was your first project? Uh, well, the first the first day I got there, they put me on a, it was an Alice Coltrane tracking date. Um, I'll never forget it, of course, because it was... Uh, just so monumental and the integrity of the musicianship and the production and engineering. And so I started my first day there, but there are a lot of other projects going on. I was kind of um, trained. It took a while, you know, for me to get uh, my sea legs. So I would assist assistants in other sessions. So I guess the first thing that I was left on my own on was, with uh, the band and they were doing um, the the last waltz, you know, the Mm. pickups and mixes and things like that, that weren't from the um, actual live performance. So that was cool. And and then, so whenever the band came into the village, I got to be their assistant and, and that was wonderful. They would do all sorts of stuff. And then I worked on a variety of things, but it all, uh, kind of trained me for the big one, which was the Asia album by Steely Dan. That was my first big project. I worked on that for 10 and a half months. Wow. Okay, tell me a little bit about that, because till the end, they were known for their precision and the fact that they would settle for nothing less than the best, which can drive a lot of people crazy when you're going through something like that. But how do you see it? Well, I didn't know much different. Um, You know, I was still a newbie and Roger Nichols was uh, my main mentor. And so he showed me it. We knew this was going to be a a long haul. And um, 
So he was very mindful of showing me all his recording techniques and things that made the minutia that made a Steely Dan record sound the way it does. And, you know, he wouldn't, these are mic cables, my hand, um, no mic cables touched, use the shortest mic cable possible. And all those little things, having the cleanest signal flow. So all of those techniques are, you know, still highly used in my toolbox. They didn't want it perfect. They wanted it right. That's what Donald used to say. I don't want it perfect. I want it right, which is harder than perfect because especially now in the digital world, uh, you can um, quantize everything, you move everything around, blah, 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 blah. Uh, that's not what being right was. And that wasn't perfect for him. So, so yeah, there was a, a lot of what uh, some people would think was quite tedious and quite nerve wracking and the sort of thing that other people say, eh, nobody's going to hear that. Yeah. Well, we, I hear it and they heard it and we would always hear it if it wasn't what they wanted. And so, yeah, it was intense. Sometimes it was pure magic, like when Wayne Shorter came in to do his solo on his sax solo on Asia. That was unbelievable. And he did about six takes, just boom, boom, boom. And um, they comped it. And it was he was out by noon, I think. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and there it was. So there were those moments too, a lot of magical moments. Wow. I bet. What did you do after Village then? Uh, well, I left the Village because I got hired by Mike Chapman to be his engineer. He was at that time, I, I think on in BAM Magazine, he was producer of the year or whatever. And so with Blondie and the Knack and, you know, he'd done Sweet and Mud and, you know, a bunch of bands and uh, very pop, very different way of doing things than I had been exposed to. He wanted a woman engineer and he wanted to make me the first female producer. That was his goal. And that was uh, what he offered me and sounded good to me. Nobody else said, you know, I hadn't even thought about that, but that actually was a really good area for me to go into. And he was an amazing producer i mean he's really out there and crazy but boy he knows what he's talking about and i learned so much about production from him i've learned so much from everybody i got to work with i've worked with just so many great people i'm so fortunate because of the village and then i became mike's so that was a completely different approach and i use a lot of those tools now and i'm very grateful to to him for all I learned from him. You say it's a different approach, but how so? Well, he worked very fast. He had a grid. He also uh, wrote a lot of the songs or he would create, he'd write a song or an, and then he'd put a band together for it. Or he would write with a band member or, you know, it was about creating the music as well as um, they didn't come in polished or come in with, everything complete. He did, he really participated on so many levels. So uh, I learned how to do things quickly, how to production wise, also certain things not to do, which was uh, 
creating a certain emotion with um with an artist or whatever um there there was that school of thought where some producers feel you have to get somebody mad or upset or something to get that performance out of them and then you know after they've reduced them to a puddle and had them sing like they hated them and then say oh thank you that was it i'm sorry i had to do that i had to get well i never bought that and uh, i'm more about empowering ahead of time (laughs) ken scott told me a story about working with richard perry and richard felt that no matter how good the musicians were they never copped the feel until they hit 30 some takes and they were so tired and sick of the song and then they'd take a break and he felt that then they could actually track as a result they hated him for it as you can imagine well he was yeah there were some very notorious producers back then i mean um, val gray was one yeah. uh, richard perry um, kim fowley mike chapman they were all these um enormous personalities that were known for their madness and kind of scary, but they did deliver. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And uh, well, Phil Spector also had that same approach too, it seemed. And, uh, uh, and a few people have done that. I love to inspire first, like talk about the song. What makes you, you know, what was it about this song or, tell me what made you write this song? How are you feeling? And blah, 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 blah. And they tell me the story and I get them back into that place. And then we and go out and, oh man, you know, just do that. Yeah. Tell yeah. me, tell me that story, you know? And, uh, and I like that initial energy and emotion is what I want. Uh, I don't necessarily want it perfect, but I want it right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> and to me, that's, that's right. And then you can fix things here and there. You had some health issues then when you were working with Mike, right? I did because we were working like crazy, you know, so all we did was work. And uh, so, you know, 14, 18 hour days, six days a week, finish one album on a Friday, um, rehearse on the weekend and started another one on Monday. And it wasn't a healthy environment. And um, I had no balance in my life and I ended up getting cancer and out of stress, out of, you know, this is just too much. And my body just said, well, if you're not smart enough to take care of you, I'm going to step in here. And so I got diagnosed with cancer about a, a record and a half before our Blondie album was coming up. And I, that was on a different label. Mike had his own label, Dreamland Records. So there were a lot of, he had like eight artists that we were just bum, 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 cranking records out for them, along with a rock record for Cher and all that. You know, there were other things in between as well. And um, so it was just constant. And I just kind of, I burned out and got sick. And, um, but I made it through the Blondie record. That was my goal. I, I wanted that record. Uh, it's called Auto American, and uh, and we had a blast doing it, and I love that record, but boy, was I sick. And Debbie Harry was so cool. She'd bring me, you know, she was microbi- macrobiotic, so she'd bring me brown rice and veggies and things like that. And uh, and the day after we mastered the record, I drove down to Mexico, and the doctor said, quit your job or die. So that's, that's where Lenise went. 
you know, here I had this trajectory going, mum, 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 boom. And uh, so I'm grateful I got to be the first woman documented to make a platinum album. Uh, but then it was like, I didn't work for eight years. Wow. Then you went into post after that, right? Yeah. Yeah. I had a great opportunity to get well holistically. And um, so I'm pretty much spent a lot of time down in the Caribbean doing boat deliveries, you know, getting my ex and I at the time he was my future ex. Uh, we lived on a sailboat in Los Angeles and then we uh, had a place down there. And um, so I would go down there and I would just, somebody needed a crew for a boat to go from one Island to another. And I, that was very healing. And uh that was just one of many things. So I'm very grateful for that opportunity. And so when I came back, when he was now my ex, um, <laughs> <laughs> I came back and went to work. And um, just the thought of putting myself back in that music business stress and, you know, there was some PTSD involved in that. And, and, and so many people during that time had left the music business and gone into post because the you know, the music business kind of tanked and and we're getting older and you wanted something a little more secure or whatever and paid well. And and um, so I was able to, through colleagues uh, who had made the, the switch, get into doing post. And my first post gig was working on the entire Disney cartoon catalog, uh, creating foreign music and effects tracks for those. So that means, you know, they take out the English dialogue. And so you have to fill in the holes with music, sound effects, Foley, and uh, optical noise. So it sounds exactly like the cartoon soundtrack, except nobody says anything. So they can dub it in any language they want. Yeah. So uh, foreign MEs, as they're called, are just standard for any creation now. And it's because everything's digital, it's it's a lot easier. But these were, you know, mono track starting with Steamboat Willie. So it was challenging and a lot of fun and very creative. And my shift, the first thing wasn't, you know, starting. I, I had to start at the bottom again because uh, music business, uh, post-production people, then a lot of them had been burned in the music business. So you couldn't say anything about the music, the M word, the M word. Yeah. And one person who I interviewed with, he, he, he says, you may have been something in the music business, but here you're nothing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he was going to pay me seven bucks an hour. And, you know, and I just went, no, I don't think so. Um, you know, I'm, I'm willing to start at the bottom, but that's, that's below bottom. And that, that was just mean, you know, you know, forget it. I had a similar experience when I first came to Los Angeles, I was told, don't tell anybody that you're from Berkeley, Berkeley school of music. Oh, really? And I was a teacher there and I went there and, uh, the word was that it just had a bad rep. So you shouldn't say anything, but I was visiting a friend at A&M an engineer also from Berkeley, who I met there, is still an old friend, cleaning up after a session. And there were seven people in the studio. And one guy heard me talk about Berkeley with my friend. And next thing you know, all the other five people, their ears pick up. Oh, I went to Berkeley. Really? I didn't know that. You went to Berkeley? And next thing you know, 
all of us had been to Berkeley, but because of the stigma of it, no one said a word about it. You know, no one knew. So I don't know if that continues, but that's the way it was then. Well, um, my impression of anybody who's a Berkeley grad is pretty good. Well, yes, but what it was was uh, the reputation. I still think that there's some of that uh, today. Kind of fool yourself. Oh. Because, you, you know, you feel that you know more than you actually do. You know, one of those things. But Oh, well, well, the first thing that I think happens when you actually go to work is you find out how much you don't know. <laughs> yeah, how true. <laughs> the school was great for to get that ball rolling, but boy, the real education was on the scene, yeah. in the session, and in the studio, and, and boy, it was really clear that there was so much more about creating music and recording good music and inspiring and capturing good music and the attitude in the room and all, all of those subtleties that you, that are acquired and you just have to soak it up and learn it. And it's kind of a drag that really that doesn't happen so much because there's not as many commercial studios. So there's not that opportunity. And then everybody's used to recording in their own home studio. And usually it's just one other person. If that, they're not real players. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's that whole wealth of industrial knowledge, so to speak, that's kind of falling by the wayside. But, and the social skills, you know, um, I taught at uh, a recording school for about eight years as an adjunct instructor here and there, which was, I loved it because I could still record, but I could teach classes, which I loved yeah. teaching. And the first class I taught was uh, studio protocols and procedures. And so I created a, a curriculum for it where I was basically training them all to work for me, to be <laughs> assistants for me. Yeah. And I told him that I said, this is a very selfish endeavor of mine. I'm, I'm here making sure that if I walk into a studio and any one of you are in there, I know I've, you've, I've got, you've got my back. And, um, and one of the main things was that, you know, I taught him about um, hygiene and being quiet and listening. And a lot of studios don't have all the new gear that you guys are learning on and they don't care. And um, they love their OS 9 and their Pro Tools 7.4, you know, and go with it and learn how to fix stuff. And um, but I would say, you know, it's like it's a service industry that you're going into. You're providing a service. So you have to create an environment that makes those clients feel so appreciated and they love being there, creating they're safe and inspired and they'll tell other people. And that includes things like cutting their lemons in quarters instead of slices and, and making sure you have ESPN and, you know, all of the amenities. And the students later came back to me and told me out of everything they learned at the school was that you said that was the most important class they took. And they said, you were absolutely right. It is all about the ESPN. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, you know, there is a school that does that. It's Nimbus in oh, Nimbus? Van oh, okay. Vancouver, which is Bob Ezrin's school. A and Bob put it together because he couldn't find assistants that he liked. And he thought, well, I might as well teach them. 
teach them my way. And I have to say, it's the one of the best schools I've ever been to from the standpoint that these people really know what they're doing and they're incentivized to work hard. They have a thing called Nimbus Bucks, which basically means that you can't get studio time unless you develop this cachet of Nimbus Bucks. And the way you do it is by going to class, doing all of your homework, showing up when you're supposed to, and then you build up this that you can then trade in for studio time, which I thought, boy, that is so brilliant. That is. That's like a gold star chart. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Wow. Well, well, that's, you know, that is totally, total incentive. And that was one thing that I thought I noticed about students. You'd, I'd always ask who, who wants, uh, who, is this a hobby for you mm. or do you want to have a career doing this? And um, you could tell who was going to evolve in the industry. And there are others because they would have the opportunity to, you know, use studio time and there were studios there and they wouldn't, a lot of them wouldn't book it. They'd just go to somebody's house and get stoned or something. I don't know. But there were the ones who were, you know, who got it that, that uh, boy, you know, once I get out of school, I'm going to have to pay for this time. And um, so they were in there every chance they got. And, you know, you couldn't help. So when um, you couldn't help noticing that they were going to succeed on some level. So it made it easy for when recording studios would come to me. Do you have any students you could recommend? Yeah. I was looking over the number of associations and causes that you're affiliated with. And one showed up that I wasn't familiar with. That's women in vinyl. What is that? Yes. Yes. Oh, they're wonderful. Gosh. Yeah. It's, it's global. Oh, you check them out. Okay. They have, um, it, it's about collecting as well as manufacturing there. There's um, one woman who cuts up in Toronto, you know, she uh, has her own disc mastering and they're just all over the country and very supportive. They have record stores. They do distribution. They do just all sorts of stuff. It's a, a, a passion sort of thing. Okay. I'll check it out. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. There's right. a lot of women in vinyl. All right. Last question, Lenise. Thanks so much for your time. This is very cool. I'm, I'm oh, glad we could talk pleasure. more and I can find out more about your past because uh, you have a, a big history. <laughs> Best way I can put it. A woman with a promising past. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I got a future too. And and present's not so bad. Yeah, right. Okay, last question. What's the best piece of advice that maybe somebody imparted to you or you learned along the way? Well, uh, do what makes you happy and create balance in your life. But do that thing that brings you joy because you only have one life and this is it. And so if you're passionate about something, if uh, then go for it and uh, things, opportunities will arise because your energy will attract them. I know. And um, so don't be afraid to do that. And again, uh, if people tell you no, look for people who tell you how. You can find out more about Lenise at LeniseBent.com. That's Lenise, L-E-N-I-S-E, Bent, B-E-N-T, LeniseBent.com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. 
Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. You can also learn all about the latest in music, audio, and production news when you sign up for my newsletter at bobbyosinski.com. There you'll also find out about openings for my latest online classes and special events. That's bobbyosinski.com. So listen to the episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. Go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab or go to bobbyownercircle.com where you can find it in Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyownercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-in form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time 